Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, as Sally said, my name is Mike, and I'll be reading the Bible. And there are two passages we're looking at this morning. Uh, the first one is from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. And you can follow along on the screens or on your devices. So, John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Our second reading is from Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1 through to chapter 2, verse 9. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of, the, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else on the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labour of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. 
So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of people, and ask them, who is left? Who, saw, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in it, in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Thanks, Mike, and good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. My name's Mark. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church Modbury. And yes, I will need, I will need that clicker. That's very useful. Thank you for that. Um, when I was in my, my late teens and early 20s, I went through a period of quite serious ongoing fatigue. Um, it's a very, very difficult season of life and very, very frustrating as well because life, life felt quite futile having so little energy. I felt like I was putting everything in and getting nothing out. And above all, it, it, felt, it felt hopeless. You just wondered, would this ever end? And maybe you've experienced a, a season of life where you've just felt life isn't meant to be like this. Maybe you're in that season right now. Haggai was a prophet who was speaking to people who were tired, discouraged, scared, overwhelmed, and feeling very distant from God. Uh, perhaps whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, those are, those are feelings that you can relate to right now. Maybe it's the strain of living under ever-changing COVID restrictions for the last couple of years. Maybe it's other circumstances in life. Haggai brings words of encouragement to discourage people. Words that are as relevant for us now as for his hearers way back then. Uh, so to put these events in their context, it, it takes place after the southern kingdom of Israel has returned to their land from exile. So you had the, the nation of Israel, which was taken into captivity in Babylon. This was God's punishment against them for, for rejecting him. And eventually Babylon gets defeated by another strong nation at that time, Persia, and the Persian king allows the, the captive Israelites to return to their homeland and, and to live under Persian rule there. 
This was around 538 BC, so it's about two and a half thousand years ago. Haggai is a fairly short book, so he doesn't go into the, the full historical details. But if we read the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, what we see is that the people who returned to the land at that time, they set about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed when the exile took place. But they faced all this opposition from, from surrounding nations, and eventually they gave up. And so the temple just lay in ruins for the next 20 years or so. Now, this was a difficult time. They were living under foreign rule. Uh, there was a lot of social instability at that time, economic hardship, crops were failing. And Israel was weak and vulnerable. It was a, just a shadow of its former strength in its glory days years earlier. And into this situation, Haggai brings the word of God. And God promises that he's with them. He's with his people. And he's going to bless them and reveal his glory in extraordinary ways. Uh, so there are three points that we're going to look at. There's going to be God's honor, God's glory, and God's blessing and rule. And I'm going to hold you in suspense thinking about those things while I change my headset. Oh, it's all good. Yep. Sweet. It's like nothing ever happened. All right. So first, first point that we've got is God's honor. God wants his people to, to get their priorities right by pleasing and honoring him. And so he, he, firstly, he points into the, the situation that they find themselves in. He tells them, you have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. It's the ultimate futile lifestyle, isn't it? And the reason for this, Haggai tells them, is that their priorities are wrong. They haven't rebuilt God's house, the temple. And their reason for not rebuilding it, verse 2, is that the time has not yet come. The time has not yet come to build God's house. Which, on one level, that seems kind of reasonable, doesn't it? They've got a lot of distractions going on. There's a, a famine, there's all the other rebuilding that they're doing, there's a lot of opposition from their neighbours. It's a, it's a pretty tough time there. But the issue is, as Ali raised so well in the kids' spot, is that they're busy nicely furnishing their own houses, making their own houses look really nice, while God's house remains a ruin. And so Haggai asks them, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin. What they ought to be seeking after is God's pleasure and God's honour. So God says to them, go up into the mountains, bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. I mean, we might think to ourselves, why is the temple so important? It's just, just a building, right? Well, the reason is that the temple is the place where God meets with his people, where his glory dwells, where sacrifices are made to God. The temple is a vital part of Israel's relationship with God. And the struggles that Israel were experiencing were actually the, the exact curses that God had warned them about. So if we rewind a thousand years in the Bible and go back to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we see that when Israel, Israel have been freed from slavery in Egypt, they're, they've wandered through the desert, they're right on the edge of the promised land, ready, ready to go in. And Moses brings them together and he reminds them of God's covenant, God's relationship with them. And he tells the Israelites, there are going to be great blessings if you 
obey this covenant, but there are going to be terrible curses if you disobey it. And two of the big curses that he warns about, warns them about are exile, well, tick that off, that's happened, and famine as well. And so what's, what's happening to Israel is exactly what God warned them all along was going to happen if they, dis, if they disobeyed him. Now, we might look at the Israelites back then, renovating their own houses while the temple was in a ruin, and, and it's easy to be judgmental, isn't it? What does it say about their spiritual state that they've been back in their land almost 20 years and they still haven't rebuilt God's temple? And we'd be right to think that. But we have to examine our own hearts and our own lives as well. In my life, whose kingdom am I trying to build? This is the question Ali was asking before. Whose kingdom am I trying to build, mine or God's? Can I honestly say that, that my time and, and my energy and my relationships are being used for God's pleasure and honor? Am I giving God my best? What, what priority does God's honor have in how I spend my money, for example? Do I give generously and, and sacrificially or do I just give whatever's left over at the end? Um, we've got Compassion Sunday coming up next week. It's going to be a great opportunity to, to think through how we're using our money to, to further God's purposes. What about my time? Does my time get, get poured into home renovations, online shopping, social media, the next holiday, or investing in my relationship with God, using my time in a way that, that best honors him. See, as I reflect on this myself, I, I realize that time is something that, that I can often find quite hard to give God my best of. See, when things are busy and the, the to-do list is piling up and you, you're wondering how you can get on top of everything, I find that, that prayer is the easiest thing just to to slip off the radar or, or to squeeze into the, the tiny pockets of time that I have left. Not deliberately, but because there are lots of tasks to get done and there'll be a lot more time to pray once all that important stuff's done. It's not really giving God my best, is it? It's really, it's a bit like giving him the, the Turkish delights and the, the moros that are always left at the bottom of the Cadbury's favorite box at the end. You can substitute that with your least favorite Chocolate illustration, if that's offensive to you. Um, but, but committing time to prayer, even when I'm busy, is part of what it looks like for me to, to prioritize God's glory. So what do you find it hard to give God your best of? Haggai isn't telling us that every single dissatisfaction in life is a punishment for not trying to please God. But it's human nature for us to, to drift towards pleasing ourselves and honoring ourselves rather than God. And so we need to be conscious of that and we need to make sure that God's honor is what we're seeking, that we're giving him our best. So Haggai's first message is about honoring God. His second message is about God's glory. And this time it's not so much an instruction that God is giving, but it's a promise that God is giving. The, the people at this point, they've spent the last month or so clearing rubble away from the, the old temple site, getting ready to, to rebuild the new temple. It's the festival month, so they're just reminded again for the, the 20th year in a row that they don't have a temple to celebrate their festivals in. And all they can do is think back to the former days 
of the temple when it stood there in, in all its glory and God himself dwelt there. And so you can imagine they would have felt discouraged at this point. They would have felt overwhelmed. Where is God? They would have wondered. He feels so far away right now. And perhaps you feel like you're really trying to, to put God first. You're trying to please him. You're trying to trust him. You're trying to do what you think he wants you to do. But he feels far away to you. Maybe you've been praying for family and, and friends who, who aren't Christian, trying to invite them along to church, uh, trying to share your faith with them. But it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Maybe you yourself have been praying, you've been reading the Bible, you've been trying to, to grow closer to God, but he, he doesn't feel any closer. What does God tell his people in the midst of their discouragement? Well, he says to them, be strong, for I am with you. And then in the next few verses, he tells the Israelites back then what, what he's going to do. And, and what he's going to do is to shake the heavens and the earth and fill his house, the temple, with a greater glory than before. Now, again, Haggai doesn't tell us, but we read it in the book of Ezra. He tells us how God fulfills part of this promise over the following years. So Israel's enemies try to interfere with the temple rebuilding. They try and get in the way and stop it. But the king of Persia, who has control over all the countries in this region, he, he hears about all this and he declares that the rebuilding costs of the temple are going to be covered by the royal treasury. So basically, the, all the nations who are trying to prevent the temple from, re, from being rebuilt end up footing the bill with their own taxes. The temple is completed four years later, and everything that was taken away from the temple during the exile is brought back, and God's house is finished. It's ready to go. Not with quite the, the same glory that we saw when the original temple was built back in, in Solomon's day, which we'll look at in a couple of months' time in our One King series. Um, but, but that's because there's a greater glory still to come. If we fast forward another 500 years, we'll, we'll see in the, the reading from John that Mike brought to us that Jesus himself will come to this temple and he'll speak of himself as being the true temple. Because the temple represents God's presence with his people. And that's exactly who Jesus is, God with us. This second temple would end up being destroyed in the, the year 70 AD, which coincidentally we're actually looking at in, in next week's passage. So join us then. Um, but by that time, Jesus had died. He'd been raised back to life. He'd ascended back to heaven and he'd given his Holy Spirit out to his followers. And so God's temple is now not a physical building, but it's the church where God dwells by his Holy Spirit. In fact, our very bodies, we read in the New Testament, are temples where the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so if we've trusted in Jesus, then God is present with us. There's no special building that we have to go to or anything like that. As the Israelites slowly cleared rubble away from what was left of their destroyed temple, I'm sure God could not have felt further away than he did at that moment. And even for us today, God's glory isn't always obvious to us. God's promise is that when Jesus returns, we're going to see God's glory in a far greater way than ever before. 
Even now, though, God's glory has been revealed to us in Jesus as we read about him in the Bible. Jesus, our perfect, sinless Savior, our gentle and lowly friend of sinners, our wonderful counselor, our risen and ruling king. As we, as we get to know Jesus, and I don't just mean a, a sort of a head knowledge of what Jesus has done for us, but really get to know him personally, we're taking in God's glory. We experience the, the presence and the glory of God as we take in the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. Now, perhaps you're here, here this morning and you're, you're still working out for yourself who Jesus is and, and whether he's worth believing in and, and worth following. If that's you, it's great that you're here with us today. And, and I'd encourage you to join us over the next few weeks as we go through the last few chapters of Matthew's gospel in the lead up to Easter. And particularly, we'd love to have you along for Easter as we explore how Jesus' death and resurrection makes all the difference. Uh, but back to Haggai and his third and fourth messages, which are delivered on the same day, are about God's blessing and rule. Now, we, we missed these bits in our, in our reading, but in the first few verses, he explains that uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. And so basically, what, he, what he's saying is you can get unclean by touching something unclean, but you can't get clean by touching something clean. So he's talking about ceremonial cleanness here, so whether you're, you're pure in God's sight. But, I mean, it's kind of the, the same as physical sickness, really. As, as many of you have found out, you can get COVID by being around someone who's got COVID. You, you can't just get cured by touching someone who's healthy, though. Same, same sort of thing going on here. And this is a problem because the only way under Jewish law that um, you can become clean after touching something defiled is by making the right sacrifice at the temple. That's, that's the only way you can become clean. And there is no temple. So there, there's no solution at that time for their uncleanness. But a turning point has happened here in the book of Haggai. God's people have responded in faith to God by rebuilding the temple. And so God tells him from this day onwards, he marked this day off in the calendar, from this day onwards, things will be different for you. Your curses are going to be turned into blessing. I will bless you. It's a turning point in the relationship for them, the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple is laid. The covenant curses are going to be replaced with blessings that would have seemed so far away to the people at that time. A day is coming when God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to overthrow thrones and rulers. And what he says is that he's going to make Zerubbabel, who's the governor of Judah at that time, like his signet ring. That's what he says. Now, the symbolism here is a little bit lost on us. We don't have signet rings a lot these days, but, but that was something precious. It was something that a king kept close to them at all times to, to, um, to validate documents. So probably a mobile phone is the closest illustration we can have today. Now, Zerubbabel himself never reached these sort of great heights, which is why probably most of us have never heard of Zerubbabel before today, and most of us will probably never think of him after today. But one of his descendants will be exalted on that final day when all other rulers are overthrown. When we read the, the first few verses of Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus descended from Zerubbabel's line. He came as the great king. 
And through his death, he made the perfect undefiled offering to God that Israel couldn't. And in fact, that we couldn't as well. Because the fact is that anything that we do for God is defiled. It's stained with a desire for our own pleasure, our own honor, rather than God's. And that's basically what sin is. It's wanting our own pleasure and our own honor rather than God's. Alicia and I, my wife, have um, quite different standards for, for how neatly a bed ought to be made and, and how often a bed ought to be remade. So a while ago, I think she was in a bit of a grumpy mood about something I'd done. So I thought, I, I want to I make her happy. I want to get some brownie points here. So I thought, I'll make the bed. That's, that's the best thing that I can do. And I knew she was pretty fussy about it. So, so I, I had a crack. I spent what seemed like hours and hours just getting the, the sheets, the probably was hours now, actually getting the, the quilts over, tucking the sheets in nice and tight. You could have, could have bounced a tennis ball off it by the time I'd finished. And, and every moment I'm, I'm thinking to myself, she's going to love this. She is going to walk in and she's going to love this. Uh, well, she walked in, she, she saw it and, and she said to me, oh, honey, you tried to make the bed. <laughs> Never again. Even the best of my efforts in that situation were, were hopelessly inadequate. And in the same way, we, we can't satisfy God's perfect standards by our own, our own work and our own goodness. Uh, so if you're here this morning just checking church out, just checking out what Christianity is all about, this, this is what's so important to understand. We don't just tick off God's expectations on a to-do list. We fall on his mercy. And it's only by his mercy that we receive his blessings. Now, we might read chapter 1 of Haggai particularly and, and think that it's saying to us, if I do enough to please God, he's going to reverse all the bad circumstances in my life right now and he's going to make me prosper. But the blessings that God promises us today, they're not good rainfall, good crops, freedom for our enemies, uh, a good super return, our kids getting good grades at school, that, that sort of thing. He may choose to give us those things, but he may not as well. These are promises under the old covenant, but Jesus has come to bring us under a new covenant. And the blessings that God promises us under this new covenant are forgiveness for our sins, the Holy Spirit, an unending life to come with none of the pains or the frustrations of this lifetime. This is greater than any material blessings. I mean, who cares how much rain falls on your garden when you've got eternal life to look forward to? And how do we get these blessings? Well, we accept Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We fall on his mercy. We live with him as our king. And we await the day when he will appear again and rule forever as God's chosen king. You see, God gave us his best. God gave us his best, his own son, Jesus, to die in our place, to free us from the guilt of sin. That's how much he loves us. And when we realize that, that, that giving him, when we realize that he's given us his best, all of a sudden giving him our best it won't be a grudging duty. It'll be a joyful response. God's glory, his blessing, his rule, they would have felt so far away to the Israelites 
at that time as they lived under foreign rule, surrounded by enemies, slowly trying to rebuild their temple and their city. And it can seem so far away for us as well. In those seasons when when life just feels really difficult, when the brokenness of the world hits home for us, when we look around for us, when we look around and we and we see a world where evil so often seems to win, a world that seems so far away from what it ought to be. But the day is coming when kingdoms will be overthrown and Jesus alone will rule. What encouragement that is to lean on. We'll experience God's presence, his glory, his blessing and his rule in ways that we can't even imagine. So let's give him our best as we wait for that day. We're going to respond to what we've heard in song. The the song that we're about to sing is a prayer that the mind of Christ, our Savior, would live in us from day to day, controlling our words, our actions, our priorities, helping us to to please and honor God. If we've got uh, youth members in year seven to nine as well, you you can head out with Joel and Beck for the youth talk as we sing this song. Let me pray as the band comes up to sing. Thank you, Father, that in your son, Jesus, you gave us your best. Thank you that in Jesus, we see your glory. And by your spirit, we enjoy your presence. Please help us to seek your pleasure and your honor as we await the day when your glory, your blessings, and your rule will be fully revealed. Amen.